Well, today we're going to uh, continue on our journey in the beginning of uh, Breshit, in the beginning of Genesis. And uh, one of the things I think that we're learning is the, uh, the love that God has for human beings, uh, the value of, uh, of humanity. If we never get anything else out of Genesis 1 and 2, uh, it should be how, how much God loves, cares about, uh, and provides for uh, humanity. That is not a self-serving thing. That is the, that is the point of view of, uh, of God. Uh, and in creating everything and preparing the land uh, in the world for mankind, certainly we can marvel at how meticulous and how perfect everything is uh, that God made. And you have to appreciate the fact that in the ancient world, creation stories were all about the gods and satisfying the gods. Uh, and uh, the creation of man was never the, the paramount uh, uh, part of the story, uh, the central part of the story. Uh, but uh, in uh, the creation story of that is true from God, from the God of Israel, the takeaway is, is wow, how significant it is to be a human being. How significant it is to be a human being. And then if you remember, we said at the very end of chapter 1, God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Uh, you know, he kept saying it was good, right? Uh, and good in relationship to its being prepared for humanity. And then when after man is created, then it's really good, right? Uh, I like to use that in my, um, uh, you know, in the... If, our common vernacular, very good is just it's very very nice, you know, very good, but really good, you know, and that's uh, that is the emphasis uh, in that in that passage there. Okay, all right, uh, you know, I guess there's one other thing that comes to mind about that. It sounds sometimes a little worldly or humanistic, maybe to us, to talk about. The uh, how much God loves humanity and how uh, man is created in the image and likeness of God and how wonderful that is, as, as you know, as if to say, uh, you know, uh, being anthro-centered instead of God, being man-centered instead of God-centered. But that is not the point at all. I uh, I think sometimes we emphasize the fact that we are. Um, you know, and sometimes in hymns and in songs, that we are worms, we are, uh, we are horrible uh, human beings, you know, uh, because of sin. Well, sin has marred this beautiful, uh, this beautiful uh, creation. It'd be like if you ever went to an art gallery, uh, you know, some uh, kind of real famous art gallery, and there's a famous painting you know, and it's gorgeous, and, and uh, somebody comes and vandalizes the painting, right? We would never say about the painting, what a lousy painting, you know? We'd say, oh, my heart is broken over this beautiful painting being vandalized. And that is what has happened to our world. 
It's not that the world itself is evil. It's not that uh, humanity is evil. It's not that God's creation is bad. But the whole thing's been vandalized. All of it. From the top down, from uh, the greatest human to the worst part of the earth. It's all been vandalized. And I think that's a good word. You know, we can wrap our, we can wrap our uh, arms uh, around that. But you see, in chapters 1 and 2 in Genesis, that hasn't happened yet. And so we have the really good creation. I would use the word great, but, that's, but the word is good <laughs> in Hebrew. Uh, and, uh, and, and so I think it's very important that God views his creation so positively. You know, that's another thing we're used to. Not only talking about humanity in such negative terms, but as God as the austere king who, because of a covenant relationship, must forgive us of our sins. You know, and it's just something that God does, like without emotion or without care. But the fact is, is that he created us on purpose and gave us this world to live in and to oversee, uh, uh, to, to be, as it were, the, the God of this world, one might say. That's what God made us to be, a little lower than himself, as we read in Psalm 8, uh, reflecting his glory, reflecting his majesty. That is what the scriptures have to say uh, about uh, humanity. And then we read how God uh, rested on the seventh day. We talked about that last time. Delighted in the seventh day. Delighted in his work. Rested from his work. Not because he had a big work week and he was tired and he has to get ready for another work week. Right? Remember we said? No. He has the seventh day is, uh, it, it represents the completed creation and God delighting in that, uh, in that creation. Now, that is really where chapter 1 is supposed to end. And chapter 2 is supposed to begin in verse 4 of chapter 2. Okay? All right. And, in, and if you know anything about this, if you've ever studied it, I would suggest that it's at the beginning of verse 4 that is the, uh, the beginning of the next section. Now, this is really very interesting. It says in English, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven. Okay? But in Hebrew, that's not exactly what it says. Okay? So the beginning says, Ele toldot hashemayim vaha'aretz. Right? This is the generation of the heaven and the earth. Now, that doesn't sound right, right? Because uh, usually when you read that, and you read that 10 times in uh, Genesis, and that's kind of interesting that uh, you read uh, these are the generations of. These genealogies are very important in Genesis. They depict the concept of being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth and moving history forward. Uh, and of course, these genealogies are all moving forward. And as uh, we will see even to the very end of, of uh, Genesis, someday when we get there, uh, that we'll see there's a promise of the Messiah you know, in, in these genealogies uh, and the Messianic people. But, but here in verse 4, it's, I know in most of our Bibles it says this is the account. 
But this is uh, the generations of the heaven and the earth, meaning this is the very beginning. And, and often when you see that these are the generations, it means this is a beginning here uh, is going to be either names or stories of those who follow. For example, in uh, uh, you don't have to turn there, but in Genesis chapter 37, it says these are the generations of the sons of, of Jacob. And then it says, when Joseph was 17 years old, and it begins the Joseph story. So sometimes uh, the generations are not told in uh, just simply begat, 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 you know, uh, this is the son of, this is the son of, this is the son of, but this is uh, who these people are, and this is what happened to them. So what you have here is, uh, and you'll notice it says very carefully, this is the generations of the heaven and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven. Two interesting things about the end of the verse. First of all, that phrase, Lord God. You see it a whole bunch of times here in chapter 2 and then only one other time in the Torah and a few scattered times in the rest of the entire Tanakh. Okay? So, uh, yud Hey vav Hey, Lord, the, the personal name, sometimes people would say Jehovah or Yahweh or something like that, and then Elohim, okay? Sometimes those words are used in tandem, but with other words in between them, not just those two words next to each other, okay? So, we, it, it's, it's there as like a marker to tell us that something uh, very personal is going to be being spoken about in relationship to, uh, to God. In chapter 1, we read just Elohim, Elohim, and we read about the majesty of God. God spoke and it was. You know, God created the heavens and the earth. God made everything, right? But now in chapter 2, here we're going to get more specific uh, about the creation of uh, man. Uh, and the relationship of God to man. So naturally now we have the word uh, Yahweh or yud heh vav Adonai. This is how we usually say it, right? The, the personal name of God, the covenantal name of God in addition to Elohim. And then notice you have this strange uh, little uh, phrase, earth and heaven, not heaven and earth, earth and heaven. It's turned around. On purpose, right? Whenever you see those kinds of things, you want to say, woo-woo, what's, what's going on? That doesn't even sound right when you say that, earth and heaven, right? Because this is the generations that come out of the earth. The, the focus here now is not God creating from the heavenlies, but what is taking place now uh, in, this, uh, in the creation of this world, okay? And most specifically, the creation of man. And so chapter 2 is not about another creation story. It's not a different creation story. It's the same one, but it is accentuating mankind. Very important to understand. Okay? All right. So uh, what we see here is now, now it says in verse 5, Now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted, for the Lord God, there it is again, right? Had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. Now, at first glance, we might look at chapter 1, verses uh, 11 and 12, and say, wait a minute, 
you have uh, uh, you have fruit bearing trees uh, and uh, you have vegetation plants yielding seed after their kind so they are they they they, they are there before uh, man uh, comes so what is uh, what's going on on here well when you read it carefully carefully uh, chapter one does not say shrub of the field doesn't say it okay I, 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 and no, and and although it does refer to plants, not plants of the field, and uh, and so it seems that what you have here is is that in chapter one you have the creation of vegetation that perpetuates itself. In other words, it says actually with seed in them. See that in verse eleven, with seed in them. And then it says in verse 12, and the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind. And so it seems that the point of verse 5 is that vegetation that requires man to perpetuate it has not yet come because there's no man to take care of it. Okay? And the point, and I would suggest to us the point of saying that is to say how important. Uh, man is to the propagation of vegetation on the earth and how man needs the vegetation in order to live. And so there is this relationship between mankind and the earth. The earth needs mankind and the earth provides for mankind. And I think that's the point of that verse, okay? That uh, these shrubs and plants needed man to cultivate the ground, okay? Then it says, but a, mi a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God, see, it keeps seeing that, Lord God, Lord God, Lord God, relationship. Whenever you see that in most of your English Bibles, capital L-O-R-D, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that is the personal name of God, and it's speaking about the, the personal relationship between mankind and God. Elohim is sort of a name for deity, you, you, you know, uh, and in his majesty, in his transcendence. The, the word Yahweh or Adonai speaks of his imminence, his closeness, his concern. Okay? All right. All right, now, verse 7. Wow, what a big verse we have here. Then the Lord God formed man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Now, this might come as a surprise uh, uh, to us when we, uh, you know, knowing just enough Hebrew uh, can be very dangerous, right? The word ruach is not in this sentence. How could that be? It says breath. Ruach is breath. Well, believe it or not, there are other words for breath. And on purpose, you have several different words. So, first of all, there's like five different interesting words here, okay? First of all, the word formed, okay? The Lord, uh, the Lord God formed man. This is a very interesting word, yatsar. This is the same word that you read about in passages in Isaiah and in Jeremiah that refer to God as a potter, Okay? So it means formed, but the context determines if it's talking about clay, then the word potter will be used. 
You know, if it's talking about iron, then whatever an iron maker is called would be used. Uh, but here it just says God formed man. But what's interesting, the reason I bring that up is that the word dust is also very interesting because afar, that is the word that in other places is translated clay. Isn't that interesting? And so, you, you know, when you go to those passages in Isaiah and Jeremiah about God being the potter and we are the clay and he fashions us just the way that, that he desires to, that's kind of the gist, that's kind of what you get here. Not only that God made man of dust, but he made man just the way he wanted to. Now I say man, I'm talking about mankind, right? Just the way he wanted to. He fashioned us. That's a term in the book of Job you read. God fashioned us. He made us with care. You know, get that picture of the potter on the wheel, you know? Uh, and here it is, right here in Bray's sheet. Uh, God cared deeply about us in, in creating uh, a man, okay? All right. Uh, from dust of the ground. And then when it says, breathe into his nostrils the breath of life, the first word uh, there refers to just blowing. I like to go like this. <sighs> Literally, not in a metaphorical kind of way, okay? He breathed into his nostrils. Now, the word, uh, the, um, the, the breath of life, nishmat uh, chaya, nishmat. Right? This is a word that is only used of human beings and God. It's never used in, in relationship to other living creatures. Right? Because we learned last time a uh, um, uh, living being is used of animals. That phrase is used of animals. But not this breath of life. This phrase for breath of life is only used of God and human beings. Again, differentiating humanity from the animal world. God, we do not read that God formed cows and horses on a potter's wheel, uh, uh, you know, in, in that way, fashioned uh, them. No, yes, he created them, but man is different. God took great special care in creating mankind, uh, and it just goes to show you the value of humanity in the eyes of God. The value of humanity uh, in, the eyes of, uh, in the eyes of God. And uh, I could say this at a variety of spots in this whole story, but it's very important that we as human beings, that we self-understand, that we understand ourselves, again, as being created in the image and likeness of God and not being too worried about everything that that means, as we'll see in a moment, other than that, wow, I am significant to God. He fashioned humankind, which includes me, even though I'm born of my mother and my mother is born of, of her mother. Well, that's part of being, of, uh, of being created male and female uh, and filling the earth. That's part of what it means to be created in the image of God. The procreation is, is part of that image. Uh, uh, of uh, being created in the image and likeness of, of God because um, uh, intrinsically what it means indeed uh, uh, to be uh, human. 
Now, there's something else to say about this passage. Uh, and that is, if you go back to chapter 1, and you look here in verse 27, God created man in his own image, and the image of God he created a male and female. So there, there's nothing about the dust of the earth. There's nothing about the ground there. The emphasis in chapter 1, in verse 27, is image of God. God created us. Image and likeness. He created us. But in, in verse 7, what's interesting is that this is elaborated on a little bit more. And we see that there is a, a part of us that comes from God. God breathed the life into us that comes directly from God. But then there's another part of us that is like the other created beings in, the, in this world. That we're part of this world. That's why the emphasis on earth and heaven, may I suggest, back in verse 4. Earth and heaven. That the emphasis is on man created in this world. Now, that, uh, that could spark a great conversation, um, or a great Bible study, because, now I'm using these, this very carefully, there's an incarnational sense of our identity. Not, we are not the incarnation of God, only Yeshua is, okay? Don't misunderstand me. But there is a sense in which we are different from everything else because we come from God and from the ground, okay? So we are not like uh, anything else that's been created because there is an element of the presence of God that makes us human, that makes us in his image and his likeness. And so that, no matter uh, how smart your dog may be, no matter uh, how many little videos on YouTube you can find about how, you know, uh, I don't know, cats are mowing the lawn or whatever they're doing, you, you know, uh, uh, only human beings have this element of the presence of God in our very being. You know, in Ephesians, Paul prays a prayer. I believe it's the prayer in chapter 3 of Ephesians. Uh, let's see. It's always scary when I just kind of think of something, right? Okay. No, there it is. In verse 14 and 15 of Ephesians 3, we read, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. There is a uniqueness to human beings. And again, that is, without reiterating it and reading it again, Psalm 8, that humanity... All of us, every human being, is created a little bit lower than God. And there is something unique about us. Now, when I say that part of our very being includes the presence of God, I'm not talking about our eternal destiny. I'm not talking about, you know, we don't need Yeshua or anything like that. That's why we do, which we'll get to, <laughs> okay? I, I, and so, I, what it, a, a great... Uh, Take home, take away of this truth is that there is, I'm not uh, simply a physical being over here and a spiritual being over here. I am a holistic being. Being a human being means I am, there is a physical aspect to me, certainly, and a spiritual dimension uh, uh, to me, a visible part of me and an invisible part of me. You don't have to cut up and say, which part of me is body, which part of me is soul, which part of me is... That's the wrong way to look at that. 
It's just we are a holistic being. Uh, and, uh, and I think it's rather just an interesting observation I will, I will make about my own life. As I am disciplined on the outside of me, I become more disciplined on the inside of me. I notice, and I don't know, I'm not saying this across the board, I'll just say it about myself, like a little testimony, that as I uh, am careful in how I take care of myself, I notice that the fruit of the Spirit uh, becomes evident in my life more as I'm disciplined on the outside. And so there is a relationship between what's going on on the outside and what's going on on the inside. That's why it makes a difference where you go, what you see, what you say, and and all of that, those are very physical parts of us. But uh, you see, the uh, redemption that we have in Yeshua is of our whole being. We haven't seen it all yet. We haven't seen that physical part all yet. Sometimes we do. But generally speaking, we haven't. But that invisible part we see has, has, is we're a new creation in, in, in that way. Uh, and so that's very important uh, here in verse 7 to understand uh, what we are, okay? And hopefully, then, uh, certainly as Messiah followers, we, we see ourselves as reclaimed uh, uh, humans that can really be the men and women that God made us to be, and that we should uh, never see ourselves, I'm so deficient, I'm so deficient. Rather, no, I am an image bearer of God. That is my destiny. That's what I'm called to be. And so, if we're talking about ourselves as husbands or wives or parents or children uh, or a teacher or a bus driver uh, or a lawyer or a doctor or an accountant or whatever we might do for a living, I have to view that through the lens of being an image bearer of God, right? My primary identity is I'm an image bearer of God and I, am, I, am, I have significance and God, when you talk about, wow, God loves us so much that he sent Yeshua into this world because he loves this creation, see? And so if, uh, you know, if you're thinking very badly about yourself, who are you to think so badly about yourself if God loves you that much? I would say that, here, I would say it like this. We would never, you would expect me to say, who are you to think badly about somebody else if they're created in the image of God? Well, apply it to yourself. Who are you to think so poorly of yourself if God made you? He fashioned you. You are an image bearer of God. And you see, in the coming of, of Yeshua, Yeshua is the ultimate image bearer of God. He is the one who is the complete incarnation of God. And that's why he had to come as a human being into this world to save us from our sins so that we could, we could be in the resurrection that reclaimed, that completely reclaimed uh, child of God. Okay, now, uh, just a little bit more for today. And the Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed uh, the man whom he had, uh, whom he had formed. So what's interesting about that is that there is a place called Eden, and the garden is inside of it, okay? Now, this is very interesting. Eden, if you look it up, most likely means a luxurious place, a delightful place, a great place. And you see, the point of it is, is that God made us, and he, and he has given us 
this a great place to live. A great place to live. Now, uh, the text goes on to say, and, and by the way, he emphasizes again this forming us as the, the potter. Isn't it interesting? And there he placed the man whom he had formed. Like, don't forget, you know, whom he had formed. Okay? And out of the ground, the Lord God caused to grow every green tree, or every tree, that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. So, you know, don't pass by that. That's a good thing. That, that God placed man in an idyllic kind of environment. And the idea with the trees, I think, is that food is easily accessible. Fruit, easily accessible. Uh, and, you know, and um, uh, as it says, and good for food. See? The tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Okay? And we'll come back to those in a little bit. Now, a river flowed out of Eden. Now, this makes us understand that, that he's talking about a real place uh, by talking about real rivers. Re you know, it's not just a, uh, a metaphor, but it's a real place because he talks about real rivers that exist to this day, right? Now, a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. So you see, so you have Eden, and then you have the garden inside of it, and the waters begin outside of the garden in Eden and flow there to water it. All right, and then it says, and from there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It flows around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. The delium and the onyx stone are there. So, you know, it tells us that this is a, you know, this is a precious uh, a kind of a place. And the name of the second river is Gion. It flows around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is Tigris. It flows around Assyria, uh, east of Assyria. And the fourth is, uh, and the fourth river uh, is the Euphrates. So, people have always wondered, where is this? Where is this? Well, you know, uh, first I will say, you know, nobody could say definitively, exactly, but may I suggest that when it talks about Havilah and the land of Cush, that's around Egypt, around Egypt. And many believe that it's basically the same dimensions as what you read in Genesis chapter 15, when it talks about uh, the dimensions of Eretz Yisrael being from the river of Egypt to the Euphrates. It's interesting. Usually you read from Dan to Beersheba, right? And when the children of Israel crossed uh, into the land, it was only across the Jordan River. And so the land of Israel, as we basically know it in the Bible, has its west coast is the Mediterranean Sea, right? And then Egypt. Uh, and the east coast, basically the Jordan River, right? But according to the promise of Genesis chapter 15, it talks about the dimensions of the land being from the, the river of Egypt to the Euphrates. Uh, and so that's just interesting. That uh, that whole area perhaps is the land, and perhaps when, uh, uh, when you have these glowing terms being spoken, especially by Moses, about Eretz uh, Yisrael, uh, the land of milk and honey, pomegranates, and this and that, that perhaps 
This is, a, you know, the, what, the beginning of this return to Eden. It's very interesting to think about. Because Yeshua, one day, will sit on a throne in Yerushalayim, and all the nations are going to come there, and it's going to be the center. And so perhaps what we have here is this land uh, that's, that was prepared for humanity, uh, perhaps being Eretz Yisrael, or that the environs, uh, in that in that area, that is very interesting uh, to uh, that is very interesting to uh, to think about. All right. Well, I think what we're going to do is stop here because if we go any further, oy, 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 it'll take us a while. So uh, may we uh, may our takeaway be today the uniqueness of being a human being, and that uh, God has breathed into every human being. Uh, his presence in the sense of, like the way Paul talks about it, the father of every family on earth. But we've been marred. We've been vandalized by sin. Sometimes to the place where we, you can't even tell what we're supposed to look like. But isn't it wonderful that Yeshua has come to reclaim us and to sanctify us and to cleanse us and to prepare us forever to live with God. Uh, and so that truly is a great news. But here in chapter 2, before there is any sin, here uh, we see just how glorious, how glorious that creation is, how glorious the earth is, how glorious mankind is. And this is our future. This is our future. A return to this, no matter how vandalized, scandalized, whatever we may be, that is not who we are. Perhaps in your life you have been scandalized. Perhaps things have happened in your life that have marred your self-understanding. That is not who you are, who you really are. This is who you really are. Created in the image and likeness of God, and God has breathed life into you. And in Yeshua, we're reclaimed uh, so that now we are a new creation and we can be the people that God made us to be. All right, let's pray. Lord, uh, thank you, God, for this great word. Thank you, Lord, that you made a perfect world, Lord. And we, so we thank you for this world, Lord. And in another sense, we're very heartbroken about this world. Lord, uh, when we look at the, uh, everything from the environment to humanity and how humanity has uh, just um, become so self-destructive. This is not the way you made us to be. This is what happens when we rebel against you. Lord, I pray that we would indeed return to you and that you would put things back in order. Lord, and I pray that you would begin with our own lives, Lord, uh, thank you for Yeshua, and I pray, Lord, that as we walk with Yeshua, you would uh, make us holy by putting us back together again, Lord, as the, as the men and women you made us to be. Yes, we may have scars, but Lord, thank you that scars are wounds that have healed and that don't hurt now. And so, Lord, even if we have some of those things, I pray, Lord, that uh, they would not hinder us from having our eyes fixed on you and continuing to move forward, Lord. And may we demonstrate, therefore, to this world 
what cleaned up humanity is like that's not scandalized and vandalized and oppressed and every, you know everything else. Lord, and we look forward indeed, Lord, to that day when there will be a new heaven and a new earth, Lord, uh, and a new Jerusalem, and all of us being totally reclaimed by you, living with you forever, Lord. We thank you for the great hope indeed that we have in Yeshua's name.